Kyle, thank you for leading us in song this evening, and so great to be with you all. Um, grateful for an opportunity to open the scriptures together with you tonight as we uh, can continue along in our study of the book of Revelation. Uh, you can be turning there, you probably know where we're at tonight, but if not, we are uh, resuming in the third chapter, uh, we will be looking at tonight verses 14 through 22, Revelation 3 verses 14 through 22. Before we uh, begin tonight, let me open us up in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you once again for the great joy and privilege that it is to be gathered here together as one body. Lord, we approach your word uh, this evening with a great uh, sense of humility, Lord, it is a book that is unlike any other, and we pray that you would g- give us hearts to receive it, uh, that you would prepare the soil of our hearts uh, to receive your word and plant it. Uh, Lord, there is much for us to, to learn and, and a great message for us to heed tonight, uh, so we pray that by your spirit you would help us to do exactly that. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So in thinking about the book of Revelation, I trust that it has already been thus far a a beneficial study for us as a church. Uh, Oftentimes when you hear the book of Revelation mentioned, it it does carry with it some sort of uh, stigma or just a a mystique, if you will. But I think the more that I read it myself or the more that I have opportunity to teach it in a context like this and uh, prepare for it, I think that... I'm continually convinced that the Lord has indeed revealed with great clarity the plans that he has for his church now and in the future. Uh, In his wisdom, he has revealed what he would, and preserved for that matter, what he would desire for his church to know, and therefore it benefits us to study the book of Revelation and not leave us wondering or Uh, left to find our own way, but as we study this together and we hear about the plans that the Lord has for His church, we should be encouraged. Um, So tonight in verses 14 through 22 of Revelation 3, uh, this will be, as you know, the last of seven letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. I'm sure it's been said here many times, but these were addressed to actual churches, that is, real people in real cities, encountering real-life events. That's really true of the whole Bible. There are timeless truths embedded within these letters, principles that we must heed today lest we go down the same path that some of these unfaithful churches did. I, I really think, and again, as I would study that this week, it's really a grace from the Lord that warnings like these that we will study together tonight are preserved for us in the canon of Scripture This letter to the church at Laodicea serves as a sobering reminder of the standard that the church is held to and the sure results of apostasy. So before we read our text this evening, let's bring ourselves up to speed and set the scene for this letter that we find addressed to the church there at Laodicea. It's worth mentioning at the outset of this letter that obviously the last of the seven, as you know, is commonly known as the most misinterpreted and oftentimes the most misused letter to the churches 
uh, in the book of Revelation. I, again, was thinking about that, and this is maybe perhaps my final exam of seminary, if you will. We'll see if we pass. Uh, But again, it is commonly known as the most misinterpreted and misused of the seven letters. And if you grew up in the church or have really much exposure to any sort of biblical teaching, you're probably familiar with some of these issues that we'll get into. It's oftentimes used to most commonly call into into question one zeal or level of commitment to Christ, to not be cold, to not be lukewarm, be hot. There's no riding the fence or remaining on the middle ground. And while these principles are certainly true, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are to be totally and fully committed to Him. We know that, agree with that. But in context, I think what we'll find is that's really missing the point of our letter here this evening. We'll labor to understand, arrive at an accurate understanding of the letter to the Laodiceans, a well-known letter one that has much to teach the church today. So follow along with me as I read our text uh, to begin our time together, Revelation 3, starting in verse 14. This is God's Word, and it says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation, of God says this I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot I wish that you were cold or hot so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold I will spit you out of my mouth verse 17 because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor, and blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may become rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I have overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Certainly a lot for us to walk through and and learn tonight. Growing up, I, like many of you, I dare say that I'm in great company here tonight, but math was not my favorite subject in school. Other subjects came more naturally to me. History, lunchtime, recess, to name a few. Even though I did not enjoy enjoy it much at that time, I have found that math and really some of the principles that I learned in those various classes have served me well over the years. It's one of those things, if we think about it, that all of us, without exception, we really do use every day at some level, maybe some days more than others. 
But take, for instance, one concept that most of us probably learned sometime during our junior high or our high school years, the principle known as the standard of deviation. The standard of deviation allows one to determine the variance, the average, and ultimately the error of margin of a given set of data. In other words, how dispersed the data is in relation to the mean or in relation to the average. And just as a specific formula can be used to find how far individual pieces of data have strayed off course, so can we evaluate how far churches have strayed from the biblical standard. Hopefully that's one of the things that you learned after studying all of the all of the seven letters now to the churches is this. What is God's standards for His church? Uh, I certainly hope that is one principle that we have taken away from studying this collectively as a church week by week. And we can now maybe uh, reiterate that is what is the Lord God's standards for His church? The ones who claim His name, the ones who have identified with Him. Within these letters, the one true God has either placed his stamp of approval on the given church or sought to rebuke and correct the failures that he finds. Within the letters of these seven churches, we find the mind and heart of God revealed to us as to what he desires and is pleased or displeased with in the church. I think I grow more thankful for that, that the Lord has not left his church just to wander aimlessly and figure it out on their own. He has revealed what his standard for us is. He has preserved it in the pages of Scripture, and it behooves us as his church to obey it and stick to it. It's for our well-being. It preserves unity in the church, and after all, he is the head and we are the body. Just as the previous six letters were, this final letter is addressed to the angel of the church referring to the key leader or leaders, the elders of the church. Continuing right along, it's no secret who's being addressed. He says this, The angel of the church in Laodicea write. That's the way that that we're on seven of seven now, and each one of them has began that exact way to the angel of the church in the given city. So maybe a word about the city of Laodicea. It was located at the intersection of two major trade routes, which therefore greatly impacted its success as a city. And if we have any realtors here tonight, or maybe you have some realtor friends, they will tell you this, what matters most, location, location, location. And within Asia Minor, Laodicea was located within a a triad region, if you will, of its own, And in our passage, it is not the triad of Greensboro, Winston-Salem, and High Point. Instead, in our passage, it's Laodicea, Hierapolis, which was 10 miles north, or 6 miles north, and Colossae, which was 10 miles east. So our triad region tonight, again, Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae. Laodicea's location did, however, lead, lead to two major issues For the city, the first issue that Laodicea's location led to was earthquakes. In fact, around the year 60 AD, an earthquake all but destroyed the city of Laodicea. 
And just to give you an idea of kind of its context and really an idea of how wealthy that it was, instead of accepting any sort of financial aid from the mothership of Rome, the Laodiceans pulled, pulled their money together and rebuilt the city, many said, better than it was in its original state. That's, that's the first problem that the city had was earthquakes. The second one that the city of Laodicea had was its water supply. Laodicea's location on a plateau that was hundreds of feet high in the Lycus Valley, it forced them to route or to pipe water to the city via an underground aqueduct system, really much like we do today. It's incredible when you think about it and even study it, whether you see pictures of uh, some of the architecture of the time or even this, something like an aqueduct system, how advanced that the people were for their time and how much our world today still resembles that of the ancient world. But because the city had no water, this made it vulnerable to attacks by enemy forces, and it was one of the most strategic moves was to cut off the city's water supply. So in that day and time when if the city of Laodicea ever had a disagreement, a battle, if you will, with another city, one of the first things that an enemy force would do would be to go after Laodicea's water supply. After all, the humans of that time were no different than we are today, that we can't really survive very long without water. And that was one of the main things that enemy forces did. Even when things were were going normal and their water was coming in, they still had an issue with their water. Laodicea was most commonly known for the undesirable temperature of their water. And since its water was piped from a city about five or six miles away of, in Hierapolis, by the time the water arrived to Laodicea, it was neither hot as it was at the source there at Hierapolis, and it also didn't have enough time to become cool yet either. We'll talk more about this later. And as we've already stated, Laodicea was a very successful city, and it was primarily driven by three particular Industries. I want you to pay close attention as we go through these because these three primary industries is really what the Lord Jesus Christ uses in many ways to draw a point and to address the church at the city of Laodicea. So the three particular industries, the three main industries that kind of drove all of commerce in the city there, um, number one, because of its location along those two major trading routes, Laodicea had a prominent banking industry. Think of it as our modern-day Charlotte. One could always cash their checks in the banks of Laodicea. The funds were never in danger of running low. After all, they built their own city back without accepting any sort of financial aid from any other city. So number one, the first great industry was the banking industry. Next, the city was also known for its wool. The wool that Laodicea became most well-known for was jet black in its color and was produced by the sheep that lived there. Some commentators mentioned that uh, perhaps the, the really dark wool was... Uh, it, it turned that color because of the, the water that the sheep continuously drank. It wasn't really convincing, but just for your information... Uh, some thought that that maybe contributed to the unique 
uh, color of the wool from the sheep that lived there. But their garments and their carpets that were manufactured in the city, they were recognized as being superior to the rest. It really even became as Laodicean wool. So we have a great banking industry. They're well known for their wool, the carpets and the garments that come from that wool. And the third primary industry, um, they were well known for a medical school. They possessed a, a successful medical school that was recognized in particular for developing a special eye salve or eye medicine that was used for eye disease and to improve eyesight. So these three industries are important to note because they are included in Christ's letter to the church here, as we will study in just a moment. So enough about the city itself. Let's transition to the church. After all, that's what we're concerned with. We want to know Christ's thoughts about his church. The church at Laodicea was most likely founded by a gentleman named Epaphras, who was Paul's co-laborer in the gospel. We know from Colossians 1, remind you that Colossians is only 10 mi- or the city of Colossae is only 10 miles away, and we know from the letter to the Colossian church from Colossians 2:1 that Paul himself did not found the church there. Instead, Epaphras did. And we know according to Colossians 1:6 that Epaphras founded that church and he, he was given credit for it and that he would most likely have been the one who also evangelized and established the church nearby at Laodicea. While we, we admit we don't know for sure who founded the church here, it was most likely Epaphras, since we do know that he established the one in nearby Colossae. But next, in the introduction to his letter, Christ provides three distinct descriptions of himself, look back at the text with me. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the same way that all of the others' letters began, and now Christ gives three distinct descriptions of himself. He says this the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. First, the amen. Christ is literally the validation, the approval, the fulfillment of the promises of God. It's an appropriate name for him. This is likely drawn from Isaiah 65, verse 16, where it states, Because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth, and he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth. The Hebrew word there in Isaiah 65, it is the word amen, meaning verification, affirmation, certainty. Christ most certainly is the God of truth. And by calling himself this, Christ is saying that he verifies all of God's promises. The language also sounds much like that of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 where the Apostle Paul writes this, For as many as are the promises of God, in Him they are yes. Therefore also through Him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Beloved, Christ is the amen. Amen. The next term that Christ uses to define Himself is the faithful and true witness. 
And because God derives his truth from within, he, that is Christ, alone serves as God's own testimony and the source of truth. Friends, Christ will only testify that which God has said and that which comes from him because it comes from himself. The last title that he ascribes to himself, not only the amen, not only the faithful and true witness, but now he says, the beginning of the creation of God says this. The beginning of the creation of God. Here our translation can be a bit misleading if we're not careful. This text, Revelation 3, verse 14, is commonly used as a proof text by those who claim that Christ is a created being created by God the Father and therefore not one or not equal with God. But the word here is the Greek word translated beginning. Here, that word in its original is arche. It has several meanings which are interrelated. Arche means ruler or one who is preeminent. can also carry the nuance, which I think it does Here, it carries a nuance of origin or source. So he, God, that is Christ Jesus, he is the origin or the source of all creation. All of it came from him. This would not have been an unfamiliar idea to the church at Laodicea because Paul wrote to correct this misunderstanding elsewhere in his letter to the Colossian church in Colossians one that was a that was a heresy that the apostle Paul had written to correct there there was this gnosticism the teaching of a higher knowledge that was floating around in the day and time and Paul had written to the church that was only 10 miles away to correct that error so that error that teaching would have been very familiar to the church at Laodicea as well that God was a cre- that Christ was a created being that he was the firstborn, if you will, of all creation, that he was less than God and not equal with him. Paul had written to correct that. They would have been familiar with that heresy. And in context, they knew what was true. Finally, this brings us to the body of the letter itself. And what I want to note with you tonight in the in the primary portion of the letter to the Laodiceans, the church there, what I want to note with you is three distinct sections. And the first section that we'll study together tonight is found in verses 15 through 17, and that's section 1, the condition of the church. The beginning of the body of letter, as we've said, it's no different than the previous ones. They all have began the same way, and it's what the Lord's saying this. He starts each of these letters with the same introduction, and he begins the body the exact same way as well. He says this, I know your deeds. I know your deeds. And unlike most of the other churches, God has nothing at all to commend about this church. Instead, God cuts straight to the point, and he addresses the sin that is present in the church It's really a divine evaluation of the spiritual condition of the church there at Laodicea. They're about to be told just how far they have deviated from God's original standard and His design. 
God goes on to use a familiar foe that was one of the downfalls of the city to metaphorically describe their spiritual condition. The first way that he does that is he uses the city of Laodicea's water supply and thus the associated terminology to illustrate the condition of the church. Truly magnificent in a, in a way that only Christ could himself. He uses something that they were no doubt very familiar with, such as their water supply, to bring it down to their level and describe their spiritual condition. The geography, once again, comes into play here. And the city of Hierapolis was located just six miles north, and it was known for its hot springs. That's what the city of Hierapolis, just six miles to the north, was most commonly known for. They were thought to have some sort of healing powers, and people would really travel from all around to the hot springs in Hierapolis, hoping to find relief. Keep this in mind. This is where the city of Laodicea pipes its waters from, from the hot waters of Hierapolis. But on the other hand, 10 miles to the east, in the nearby city of Colossae, they, on the other hand, possess the coldest drinking water of any city in the area. So the city of Laodicea was positioned within two polar opposite ends of the spectrum between the hot water of Hierapolis and the cold water of Colossae. And since Laodicea piped its water in from Hierapolis, by the time it arrived to Laodicea, you guessed it, it was neither hot nor cold. It was lukewarm. It was undesirable to drink because of the temperature, and not only because of its temperature, but it was also known for having a lot of sediments in it. So can you imagine that just for a moment? It's not too far of a stretch for us to think about drinking maybe room temperature water with a lot of dirt in it. It's not very desirable. It's not something that we would want. So we know that Jesus is using this familiar picture or illustration of their water to describe what is occurring spiritually within their church. But the question is, how do we interpret this? How do we interpret this? What does it truly mean to be spiritually hot, spiritually cold, or spiritually lukewarm? Perhaps you have some thoughts on this, but again, given the context, I think we can arrive at appropriate meaning here this evening. So there are two main interpretations of this, and the first one is this, that these temperatures of the water, hot, cold, and lukewarm, that it refers to different levels of spiritual desire or different levels of spiritual zeal. According to this first view, cold would be unbelievers, those who are spiritually dead, no interest at all in the gospel. That would be the cold. Next, hot, this would be referring to believers, those who possess a great deal of spiritual zeal, one who is on fire for the Lord, if you will. They are hot. And then lukewarm, according to this first view, also refers to believers but that are not so spiritually enthusiastic or zealous. They are believers, but just kind of indifferent in a lot of ways. That's the first view. And that first view, it has a couple problems, I think. First, I think it would be unlikely that Jesus would desire 
that lukewarm yet genuine believers would become unbelievers. That's pretty unlikely. Not only would Christ not want that, but past that, it's impossible for one who is at one point in time a genuine believer to become at a later point in time an unbeliever. We know according to the teachings of Scripture in the Old Testament and the New that once one is in Christ, that Christ will not lose them because our salvation rests outside of ourselves in God himself. Second problem with this view is that it, it wasn't really held by the early church either in any early church writings and even elsewhere in Scripture that it's, it's not found anywhere, that first view. So, next, the, others, the other possibility that this terminology refers to is to what some have called the spiritual benefit of genuine believers versus false believers. So according to this second view, hot and cold both refer to believers. Let me explain. And lukewarm would be the only category that refers to unbelievers, those who are spiritually useless or undesirable. So remember in context, the hot waters of Hierapolis and the cold waters of Colossae were both beneficial and both desirable. Think of a modern example of this, one that we could certainly relate to and be familiar with, a a heat pump. At different times of the year, we benefit from the warmth of hot air or the cooling effect of cold air. Both are beneficial, both are desirable, depending on the context. And I think it will become more clear as we continue to study this letter that the church that God was writing to was full of unbelievers. Not those who had heard an accurate gospel and made a false profession, as the first view would state. Rather, those who have embraced a false gospel altogether, primarily based on works-based righteousness, and they stand in need of correction. So I think the most accurate view, if we have to land this evening, and we do, would be view number two, that hot and cold refer to believers. Both have benefit, both can be desirable depending on the context, and that the lukewarm in the illustration refers to unbelievers. Look back at the text. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. And now verse 16 what does he say he will do with those that are lukewarm, the unbelievers, as we, have, as we have stated? So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, he says, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's really a, a mild translation in our English text. It, God will literally vomit them, literally spit them up out of his mouth. He, he cannot stand the, the thought of that. Verse 16 really gives us a picture of divine judgment. This church will be spit out of the mouth of God because he is not pleased with it. Continuing right along with verse 17, Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Verse 17 gives us more evidence of the church's spiritual 
condition. It, it carries this idea that the mindset of the people there in the city of Laodicea, they, they thought that they had arrived where they were, they had enjoyed the success that they were enjoying. They had got there on their own. They have need of nothing. They don't have need for God. They don't have need for His gospel. They're enjoying a, a lot of success as a city. After all, that, they don't want help. They don't want money from Rome. They don't need that. We're good. We'll rebuild our city on our own. We're, we're self-sustaining, self-existent. They were very, very prideful. However, Christ describes them as wretched and miserable. Christ even says that you don't even know that you're wretched and miserable. I can't help but think that the world in which we live today in our modern day is the exact same way. They define success differently and they don't even know that they're wretched and they don't even know that they're miserable. They find their, their enjoyment and, and their freedom and the things that bring, bring them pleasure and far different things than, than the Lord's church does. That's the way that Christ describes them. As a city that is wretched and miserable. But the next three adjectives that Christ uses is once again tied to the three main industries that Laodicea was known for. Look back at the text with me. says, you don't even know that you're wretched and miserable. And now he gives us three more adjectives tied to their industries. He says, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. You're spiritually poor, you're spiritually blind, you're spiritually naked. First, spiritually poor. He, he describes them as being beggars. Christ is tying this to... Again, their primary industry, one of the three at the time, they're known as a banking hub, a huge banking city. And Christ says, you don't even know that you're wretched and miserable and you're poor. You're spiritually poor. You're beggars. Next, he tells them that they are spiritually blind. Again, drawing on that idea, they're most well-known in the city there for their medical school and their medical school, in particular, is known for that eye salve that they have developed to treat eye disease and to improve one's eyesight. Yet Christ tells them, not only are you spiritually poor, spiritually bankrupt, you're also spiritually blind. Third, Christ says they're naked, spiritually naked. In a city that is most well known for its wool, for its garments, for the carpet, the carpets that are produced there, Christ once again ties it to their industry and says you are naked. You are spiritually naked. You have nothing to cover yourself. This gives us the idea that they are altogether lost, unregenerate, no hope in the gospel, no hope in Christ. And Christ himself is using their context, their industries to draw the point and to drive it home. It's really a sad picture, but it's the true state of the church of Laodicea. Now beginning in verse 18, this will bring us to the next section of the letter, and that is section 2. In verses 18 through 20, we'll find the call 
for repentance. The call for repentance. So we've had the condition of the church in verses 15 through 17, and now the call for repentance in verses 18 through 20. And in his call to repentance, Christ continues to tie his description to their main industries. He he uses this all throughout the letter. I said it was going to be important for us to keep that in mind. Look at verse 18. He says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire. I can't help but see the compassion of Christ coming out here, even to a city of unbelievers. And he says, patting them on the shoulder, if you will, let me give you some advice here. Let me advise you really quick. Advise you to buy gold so that you can become rich. This, this gold here has been said to represent true saving faith. It really far surpasses even gold that is refined by fire. And although no illustration itself will hold up, you, you get the point that saving faith is indeed valuable. He not only tells them to buy gold that they may become rich, but he says to buy white garments. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. What else do they need to buy? They need to buy white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. The white garments stand in contrast to the black wool which Laodicea was most commonly known for. They don't need the robe of their own self-effort. Instead, the people and us by extension today need the white garments of Christ's imputed righteousness. He instructs them to buy one more thing. Look at the end of verse 18. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. They need to buy eye salve. They, they need spiritual sight because they don't naturally have it. Friends, we are the same today. Anyone that has been saved in, in the context when the Bible was written in any point in history between now and then, we are the same today. If we are going to spiritually see, we must receive that sight from God himself. These things that God is telling them to buy, that Christ is telling them to buy, they could not be bought at any storefront in the city of Laodicea. These spiritual goods can only be purchased, if you will, from God. Not with any earthly currency or self-effort, rather with the currency of faith. Now, verse 19. After they've been instructed to buy... In the midst of this call to repentance, verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. On the surface, you can see why this verse is oftentimes used and given as evidence that Christ is talking to believers here. If I'm being honest, I think I've probably used it somewhere along the way out of context. However, we know from elsewhere in scriptures that that God does indeed love unbelievers. Not in the same way that he does believers, but he does indeed love them. That sounds strange, doesn't it? 
Obviously, we, we do know that Christ has a special love for those that scriptures call the, the elect, God's church. God has a special love for them. But here in his kindness and out of his common grace love for all of mankind, God is reproving and disciplining a group of unbelievers who have claimed his name and gathered together as a quote-unquote church, if we might use it lightly. He's doing so via a divine warning in the form of this letter. And regarding this same point, commentators, they point to Mark 10.21 in the account of the rich young ruler. You guys probably know the story. It says this, Looking at him, that is the rich young ruler, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all that you possess and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Just as the rich young ruler refused to give up his material possessions and self-effort, so did the Laodiceans. They would not neglect that. They would not neglect their self-effort, their possessions, their power that they had. They were in the same state as the rich young ruler who we know did not come to faith in Christ. Another evidence of God's love for unbelievers, John 3.16, I dare say we could all quote it, that God loves the world. God does love unconverted people, however, with a different love. Reprove and discipline elsewhere refer to God convicting and punishing sin. How does he end that? In light of that, therefore what? Be zealous and repent. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. This word repentance is certainly worth us defining. Not only in in our letter tonight, but by extension in our modern day, in the modern church. The word repentance is oftentimes thrown around and given lip service. But friends, we must ascribe, we must believe in biblical Repentance. We must let the Bible define it. You're burdened because you have offended. Biblical repentance is being burdened because you have offended a holy God and you then turn and go the opposite direction. It is a 180. A godly sorrow, a biblical repentance like David exemplifies in Psalm 51. You recall what happened there when he was caught in the heinous sin of a Adultery with Bathsheba. What does David say? Psalm 51 verses 3 and 4. He says this. No doubt David in in that context had sinned against many, many people. But he says this in Psalm 51 beginning in verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only... I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Friends, that is a picture of biblical repentance, that not only are we repenting and and saying sorry and going a, a different way, not only are we sorry because we got caught, but most of all, we are sorry and we're burdened because we have sinned against the one true God. Friends, the Christian life is a repenting life. 
It's a repenting way. And if we are to walk with Christ, we must repent. We must do it. It's not easy to do. It doesn't come naturally to us. Oftentimes, it is painful and difficult and hard. But the Christian life is one of repentance. Verse 20. Maybe one of the verses that the letter to the church at Laodicea is most well known for. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. This is an unnatural ending to on the heels of God announcing judgment at the end of a call to repentance. You would, you would expect the, the judgment to come, but instead, at the end of this call to repentance, the section here, God ends it with a very kind invitation to do exactly that, and that is repent. The Lord ends this section of the letter with an invitation Verse 20, like other verses in our section, is commonly misinterpreted. This verse, as you know, is often used to describe Christ as knocking at the door of an individual sinner's heart. However, we know that context is important for us to pay attention to when we are reading Scripture. And in context, the door that Christ is figuratively knocking on is the door of the Laodicean church. It's not an individual sinner's heart. The context is much more broad and widespread than that. And Christ was standing outside of this apostate church, outside instructing the church to open the door and repent. Christ is pictured here in verse 20, standing outside the door of the Laodicean church, pleading with the people there to repent. Friends, I don't know about you, but that's not the way that I would like Christ to be pictured of any church that I would be a part of. I don't want him outside of it knocking on the door. We want him in it, right? Yet that was the sad truth, the sad state of the church at Laodicea. Christ was outside of it. And if they would but only repent, Christ says this, if you will but repent, I will come into him and I will dine with him. And he with me. Christ always, ever and always, honors true repentance. That dining, it pictures fellowship, communion, and with repentance, those who were once the enemy of Christ are seated at the table of Christ's fellowship and love. He stands at the door and knocks, and if they will but hear his voice, repent, open the door, He says, I'll come into him and dine with him and he with me. This dining that is pictured here, it's unlike the dining that most of us do today and swinging through a a drive-thru really quick. This dining that is pictured in verse 20 in the context when the family would come together, they would share a meal, oftentimes lasting hours. They would would eat and fellowship and enjoy communion. It, It lasted a long time. It is this picture of fellowship and communion and Christ is saying 
That is what you will enjoy with me, figuratively speaking, if you will, but repent and turn. Those who were once my enemies will be seated at my table of love. So lastly tonight in verses 21 and 22, this brings us to the last section of our letter. And that's section 3, the counsel of the Lord. The counsel of the Lord. So we've had the condition of the church, the call to repentance, and now the counsel of the Lord. Christ offers one final word of counsel that is meant to be an encouragement really to us, to, to all genuine believers, and on the other hand, a sobering reality for unbelievers. Look at verse 21. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Not only will those who overcome be seated with Christ, but they will also rule with him. First in the millennial kingdom and then throughout all of eternity. Friends, this is the sure future of the Christ church. Not only will we be seated with him, but we will also rule with him. It's the final counsel, the same as the other six letters. It ends the exact same way. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All of the letters are addressed the same way to the angel and then to the given church. The body of the letter starts the same way. A picture of Christ's sovereignty, His omniscience. I know your deeds. They may have had people in their city, in their church, in their day and time full, but Christ says, I know your deeds. And the letters also end the same way. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. A couple final thoughts for us, a couple quick reminders as we conclude our study. The first one is this, that now that we have studied all of the seven letters, the, the seven churches in the book of Revelation, at the end of a study like this, I, I think that it's fair to say that we should remember the standard. That when we evaluate our own church or when we are advising others in their own city, in their own place where they live, to remember the standard. If we are going to claim to be Christians, followers of Christ, those who have identified with Him, we have to identify the standard and judge a church according to the standard that we find within the pages of Scripture. Remember the standard. The last reminder is this, is that Christ only honors genuine faith and repentance. The faith and repentance that the church at the city in Laodicea, the faith and repentance that they were giving lip service to was not genuine faith and repentance. If it was, Christ would have honored it and he would not have been pictured standing outside of the church door there knocking, pleading for the people to repent. 
that was true of the church at Laodicea is true of our churches today in 2022. Christ still only honors genuine faith and repentance, and that is only granted by Him. Friend, if you're here tonight, and maybe you can see yourself pictured as we have collectively studied and looked together in the mirror of God's Word. Maybe, unfortunately, the the church and the people at Laodicea, maybe that describes you. Maybe the Lord has given you spiritual sight tonight. He has rubbed that eye salve that only He possesses to give you spiritual sight to, to see yourself as you truly are. Let's pray that way to end our time together tonight. Father, we thank You for this unique joy and opportunity that we have to study your word together. Father, we specifically thank you for the seven letters that you have preserved for us in the book of Revelation. And Lord, it has been a, a great sobering reminder for us here today that we must remember the standard, that we must seek your stamp of approval, not man's, not, not anybody besides you. So, Lord, help us to do that. And, Lord, we, we do pray if those here tonight, if there be one here that can identify with the people in the church at Laodicea, Lord, we pray that they would heed the message while they still have time today. May they be zealous, repent, displaying a, a godly sorrow, and run to the one true King, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the head of the seven churches that we have studied. He is the head of our church today. And you alone are worthy of all praise, honor, and glory that we could give you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.